Have you ever wanted to know the truth so bad that you stayed up all night to discover it? I'm not talking about staying up all night to study for a final exam. Many of us have done that. Or the case of the man who stayed up all night to see where the sun went. It finally dawned on him. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about an inner hunger, an inner drive so intense that one will go to great lengths to take significant risks to discover the truth. And we actually see this happen every day. The scientist in the laboratory who stays up till all hours of the night to finish an important experiment. The computer programmer who works around the clock to develop a new program. The team of forensic experts who burn the midnight oil to solve a crime. The rescue workers who work 24 hours a day without a break to see if there's anyone else alive in the earthquake rubble. The truth, whatever the truth is, we pay a price, we take risks, expend enormous energy, lose sleep, and we cannot rest until we know the truth. Martin Luther, the founder of the Christian Reformation, was one such religious figure. He spent many a sleepless night searching for spiritual truth. But long before Martin Luther, there was another man who embarked on a journey to discover truth. In essence, his entire life was dedicated to truth and its discovery. And in this one instance, he carried out his search late into the night. His name, Nicodemus. His search brought him to a man named Jesus. And his questions as relevant today as back then. Today we're going to look at Sleepless in Jerusalem. And I'd like us to read about it. Probably this includes the most familiar passage in the Bible, John 3.16. And it's critical that we, on a consistent basis, reiterate and revisit this passage to remind us how to share the faith of truth and to bring the truth to those that may not know it. John 3, John 3, the third chapter. We're going to read the first 17 verses of John 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things 
and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Who, who, no no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I want to start this morning by talking about the man Nicodemus. Who is this guy? In order to understand what's going on here, we need to understand who Nicodemus was. Who was he? Where was he coming from? What truth was he seeking? And what is he afraid of? And were his questions answered? Or was his sleepless night rewarded? Was it worth it? And then so what? What difference does it make to us here today in Eau Claire. The man Nicodemus, who was he? He was, first of all, he's a Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he studied religious Jewish law and civil law, and he strictly observed these laws. He was considered the protector of laws of truth. And it was his job to see also that everybody else obeyed him too. Some of you know people, you have people in your life, that their job is to make sure everybody else follows those rules as well. As such, he was highly educated. He valued education. He was very moral. He was very strict in his religious observance of all Jewish law. He was also, we find, a member of the Jewish ruling council. When we look at the setting in which this passage takes place, we find that there was an uneasy alliance between the occupation rulers, the Roman government, and the Jewish government. It really was, if you look at it, it was an alliance between church and state. That's what it was. The Romans, even though they were superstitious, were in essence secularists. They were secularists. The Jewish government was religious, and their goal was theocracy. Theocracy. There were certain functions that the Roman leadership allowed the Jewish ruling council to perform. And the Jewish ruling council wielded a lot of influence because they took the responsibility to keep these cantankerous Jews in line. That was their job for the Roman government. The occupation of a foreign country isn't all it was cracked up to be. And so they depended on the Pharisees and the Jewish ruling council to keep them in in check. So Nicodemus was politically connected. He was wealthy. He was was very well known. He could easily have been recognized if you saw him on the street or at the local mall or whatever. Even though he had political power, wealth, and fame, he was missing something. Looked like he had his life together, but he was missing something, and that something was truth. Truth. So thirdly, he was a seeker of truth. Seeker of truth. He wanted to know the truth, and it's significant that he came to Jesus at night. There was apparently, even at this point, some risk to being associated with Jesus. Jesus had already upset the religious establishment, but Nicodemus had a hunger for truth, wanted truth. Now, the first part of this interchange looks as if Nicodemus made a statement, but Jesus answered it as if it were a question. Kind of an interesting construct here. 
verses 2 and 3, he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What does that mean? Well, very briefly, the Jews have been looking for a Messiah for over 400 years. Probably actually longer. And their country had been occupied by foreigners for a lot of that time. And every Jew alive that day was looking for and expecting a deliverer. They were looking for the deliverer. And not just politically, because most sincere Jews wanted the freedom to practice their faith as prescribed by the Old Testament law. This included the Old Testament sacrifices and the freedom to worship their God. Their vision of Israel was a theocracy, religion and politics inseparably intertwined. And the Messiah was supposed to bring this to their people. This accomplishment was called the kingdom of God or the rule of God. When God would once again be in charge of the nation of Israel, they would once again be able to worship the one true God openly. So that's the background, the setting in which Nicodemus asked this question. And he made this statement, I know you are a teacher come from God. It was the equivalent to asking, are you the Messiah who's bringing the kingdom of God? That was his real question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we expect that's going to come and set up your kingdom? It was a quest for truth. Now, I don't know if you're here today and you can identify with Nicodemus. You may or may not be politically connected or wealthy or prominent or well-known. But I hope you here, all of us here, are seekers of truth. People have questions about religion, questions about God, questions about the Bible, questions about Christianity, and questions about this central figure of, Jesus, of, of Christianity, which was Jesus Christ. We all need to ask the question he asked. His question was, are you the expected Messiah who will bring the kingdom of God? This was Nicodemus, the seeker of truth, looking for answers. Now let's look at Jesus. Second character in this story and his response. Jesus' answer totally baffled Nicodemus. If you put yourself in his shoes, you can, you can only imagine what it was like. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, Nicodemus, you're looking for the kingdom of God. Do you want the truth about God's rule, his agenda, his plan for you? Do you want to see and experience God's plan? He says, you need to be born again. Born again. I mean, where did that come from? Nicodemus is thinking in logical, physical dimensions. So he follows up with this logical question. How can, a, how can a person be born physically twice? Absurd. How can they be born twice? What did Jesus mean by born again? How do we answer this question if people ask us, what did Jesus mean by being born again? We've heard the term born again. What does it mean? I mean, we, we heard it bandied about in the election of Jimmy Carter back in politics. We've, we've heard it stated by Billy Graham and Billy Graham Crusades. We've seen it in different places. We typically hear the phrase in religious settings, born again. Who was the first person to use the term born again? Jesus was. Jesus used it. And what did he mean by 
born again. I want us to take just a few minutes to look at what does born again mean. Born again means, first of all, a new beginning spiritually. A new beginning spiritually. When we are born physically at a very early age, we begin a brand new life, a brand new existence. And we have no past, we have no mistakes, we have no baggage, only future. So when we're born physically, it's all future. There's no baggage, there's nothing we're carrying with us. We're just we're starting everything brand new. We are all physical beings, but we are also spiritual beings. We have a spiritual nature. And the real person who we are is not the physical, the outside. The real person is more than that. It's body, but it's also soul and spirit. I don't know how many of you look back over your life, your physical life, and you'd say, if I could only live my life over again, or if I could just have a new start. A lot of people want a new start in their life. They've made mistakes or they've done things. Well, being born again is like living life over again. It's a brand new start. It's a start. People will say, I've really made a mess of my life. If you knew where I've been, you'd be shocked. But that part of our life is irrelevant. Because Jesus offered a new start. You can have a brand new start, everything future, no past, born again. And that's to turn from our self-effort and attempts to please God by ourselves. And ask God to change us from the inside out, spiritually. God accomplishes this transformation. It's a new beginning spiritually, a change of the inner person. Our outside life, our physical life at this point is in irrelevant. Inside is the, real, is the real you. Born again means a new beginning spiritually. Secondly, born again is initiated and accomplished by God. It's accomplished by God. This is God's job. Being born again is initiated by God, the Spirit of God, gives birth to spirit. It's God's work. It's not my work. It's not your work. We cannot make ourselves a new person. We cannot give ourselves a new start. I can't leave it all behind and start over, but God can accomplish that in me. It's God's job to give us new life spiritually. And closely related to this, being born again is not an earned right, but a birth right. It's not an earned right. It's a birthright. Did anyone here earn the right to be born into your family? You guys have anything to do with it, your birth? I know. I, I had nothing to do with my physical birth. I just showed up, just popped out, and there I was. I don't know about you. I didn't have anything to do with it. Someone else takes credit for our birth. Some people think that this born-again experience is something that we work at, something we earn or accomplish. It's not. It's an not an earned right, it's a birthright. It's accomplished by God. It's God's work being born again. Fourthly, changes are obvious and observable. Changes are obvious and observable. Jesus uses the illustration of the wind. Now, we don't see the wind, we hear it. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but the effects of the wind are obvious. One thing I learned in Wisconsin is that wind comes up very quickly. We had to, we had to fasten our, our grill down in the back patio because 
I, we kept finding it out in the middle of the lawn or over here, over there. And we'd say, what happened? The wind came up. There was a storm last night. So we could find out if there was a lot of wind by where our grill was in the morning. So we finally figured it out how to, how to secure the grill so it wouldn't blow. Of course, I could have taken the wheels off too. But, you know, it, had, it has wheels. Well, the effects of the wind are obvious. Jesus says to Nicodemus and to us, the process of being born again, starting spiritually, is God's job. It's a birthright, but you can see the difference. There is a difference between before you were born again and after you were born again. There's a significant difference between life in the womb and life outside the womb. There's a definite time and point of transition from the old to the new, from the womb to the world, before birth and after birth. We all celebrate birthdays. And you, you go to the Olive Garden or Texas Roadhouse Grill or some other restaurant, and they sing this horrible birthday song and embarrass us just to remember us our birthday. We all have a birthday. How you remember it, that's up to you. But birth is a change point. Definite change, a new beginning, and the differences are obvious. For some, birth takes longer. For some, birth is quick and sudden. But when we are born again, we do change. We do change. Therefore, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Change. Change. And that's the mystery of being born again, is that we actually change. Like wind, we hear, we feel, we see changes and effects. And when we're born again, we're changed on the inside, in our spirit, our internal state of being. By being born again, we enter a new state of being, a new life that produces outward manifestations. Now, those of you that gave your life to Jesus a long time ago and you were born again, it's a little bit harder to remember and if, if you were really young when you were born again, you, you weren't in this huge life of sin that God changed you and, and now you're living in righteousness. The changes are a little less dramatic. Some people that were converted or born again later, there's a, a humongous difference. But there is a difference and we always see change with new birth. It's always new birth, going from darkness to light. Sometimes we marvel at the power of God to transform a life and forget to marvel at the power of God to preserve a life. Some people had their life preserved. So that's what born again means. A new beginning spiritually, initiated and accomplished by God, a birthright, not an earned right, and the changes are obvious and observable. And as we talked about that, ask the question, have I experienced being born again? The next section of what Jesus talks about is, this is what makes born again possible. What makes born again possible? Verses 14 and 15. It says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What do snakes have to do with that? If you see that, you go, what, what is this all about? What do snakes have to do with being born again? Glad you asked. Je Jesus, remember, is speaking to a Jewish audience. And this is referring to an event in their history. It was an Exodus event. We've been going through the book of Exodus. 
We haven't gotten to the snake part yet, but the, the story in Exodus, the Exodus was leaving Egypt, leaving slavery, gaining freedom, entering into all that God had for them. And during the Exodus, they went into the wilderness and they sinned. They sinned. I know it's hard to believe, but they sinned. And God sent judgment. God's judgment is always designed to bring us back to restore relationship with God. And in this particular case, God sent poisonous snakes to judge people. These snakes were moving amongst the people. They were biting them, and they were dying. They were dying. It was judgment. And Moses said, what do I do? And God instructed him to make provision to be delivered from their sin or the consequences. And his provision was a bronze snake on a pole. Say, what? Why was that? I don't know. It's, it's one of those weird stories. So that not everything in the Bible is, is clear-cut. And you go, well, that makes sense. That's what I would have done. Who knows? It's a, it's a snake on a pole. He says, make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And lift it up for the people to see. And anyone who was bitten just needs to look at the bronze snake on the pole, believe, and they'll live. Look at the snake on the pole, believe it, and then they will live. It's weird. But it really happened, and it really worked. That's what he's talking about here. Now, Nicodemus would have taught that story, and so the story was very familiar with him. It was the look of faith, and the effects of that look of faith brought deliverance and healing. So Jesus uses that story from Nicodemus' past, from the Israeli exodus. And he tells Nicodemus and us that Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to be put on a pole, on a cross. And a look of faith and belief will save you. Does it make sense? How, how does that work? I, don't ask me to explain it. I, I have no idea. All I know is that Jesus said, I will be lifted up. The Son of Man will be lifted up, put on a pole, the cross. And if you look at it, even if you're bitten by death, you will live. Does that make sense? Not to me either. It works. So what makes born again possible? Jesus' death. Jesus being lifted up. Jesus' death makes this birth possible. How can death produce life? How can death produce life? I will never forget one of the pictures taken from a video camera in the stairwell of the World Trade Towers in New York City during 9-11. The camera was pointing down the stairway. I'll never forget this picture. And people, firefighters, they, they showed firefighters coming up into the building, and they showed people going down out of the building. Firefighters went in to get people out, and they gave their lives so those people could live. In essence, the firefighters died instead of those people. They died in the place of those people, the ones they saved. And in that instance, death produced life. This is a concept of sacrifice, a concept of substitutionary atonement. 
in the same way Jesus died so we could live. He died so we could live. He was lifted up, and he says, look at that. The Son of Man must be lifted up. It's a concept of sacrifice. It's the concept of substitutionary atonement. Died in our place. That's what he said, and Jesus is predicting his death. He said, this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man will be lifted up so you can live. I will die so you can live. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus died to pay for our sins, our shortcomings, and our inabilities. And in order to be acceptable to a holy, perfect God, our debt had to be paid. And Jesus paid that debt. I don't want to carry this analogy too far. Every analogy breaks down at some point. But some of the people in the World Trade Center were panicked. They didn't know what to do or unable to make it to safety. They could not save themselves. The firefighters gave their lives because of those inabilities and their shortcomings so they could live. Jesus died to make up for our shortcomings, our inability to save ourselves, our sins, so that we could live. Do I totally understand this any more than I understand the wind or spiritual rebirth or being born again? Life coming through the death of firefighters? No. But I know it's true. Is truth what you're looking for today? Is truth what you're looking for today? Someone once said, if one has to choose between searching for God and searching for truth, search for the truth. For searching for the truth will most certainly lead you to God. Jesus' death makes born again possible. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection. Romans 9, 10, 9 to 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 to 20 says, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then, all, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus conquered death. Jesus validated his claim to deity. He demonstrated his power to give life, spiritual life, so we can be born again. So what makes born again possible? What makes it possible? Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and number three, our belief in these truths, our belief in these truths. Truth 
brings us to reality. He says, everyone who believes in him, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, believes in Jesus. Now, when we talk about the word, we use the word believe, in English, it means intellectual assent. And many people sitting in the pews of the churches in America have this level of belief. They have intellectual assent. I believe that happened. I believe this. I believe this. The Hebrew and the Jewish culture does not allow us to stop there. In Jewish thought, in Jesus' words, belief includes thought, will, emotion, and action. It's active trust. It's not just this intellectual belief of some abstract thought. It's active trust by placing trust. Intellectual belief is inseparable from action or belief. To believe in Jesus means to assent to his claims, trust in his person, submit to his leadership, and give ourselves totally to him, to trust him and him alone for this new birth. And if you have never, ever moved beyond intellectual belief, and I talk to people every week, many have intellectual belief. That's it. If you've never moved beyond that, you can do that today. So what are the results of being born again? What is it that Jesus came to do? First one says you will not perish. Now, this does not refer to physical death. The context is spiritual. It's eternal. Perish relates to our eternal state of being. And Jesus spoke more about a place called hell than he talked about heaven. Why would he do that? Why Why would Jesus do that? Why would I warn you about the dangers of living in Nome, Alaska? The cold, freezing climate some people live in. I can sing the praises of the climate in Florida, but I want to give you a realistic picture. Then if you want to move to Nome, Alaska, be my guest. Why would Jesus warn us? Because he doesn't want us there. I'd be remiss this morning if I failed to warn people about a place called hell. A place of eternal punishment where people perish There's eternal separation from God. It wasn't created for humans. It was created for the devil and his angels. Jesus warned us about that too. And I also warn you. But we don't have to end up there. Jesus came to save us from hell. Whoever believes in, places their confidence in, submits their life to Jesus. He says, will not perish, but will have eternal life, eternal life. John three eighteen says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of, the, of God's one and only son. Verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life and whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. We can have eternal life. We didn't earn it. We weren't born into it that way. It's a spiritual gift. 
What is eternal life? The eternal word eternal means boundless, without boundaries. We tend to think of eternal life in terms of heaven, life after death, and it includes that aspect. But eternal life has no boundaries. It's future, but it's also eternal life in the present. A spiritual state of being that transcends time and space. It begins when we're born again and continues forever, dead or alive. Dead or alive. What's so incredible about eternal life is that it begins as a new start and has no end. There's no end. Our spiritual state continues beyond death. In fact, eternal life is necessary for us to experience the beyond death as God intended. People today have a lot of fear. Fear a lot of things. They're, we've, been, we've had fear stoked in our lives, especially the last two years. Health issues and pandemics and all those other things. Some people are afraid of flying. Some fear being in tall buildings. Some fear being in crowds. What do people fear the most? The most the biggest fear typically is death. They fear death. And perhaps it's because they do not know what follows death. I will never forget when Judy's mother, my mother-in-law, came to stay with us. She, she was given, I think, three months to live. She had cancer. And she came to live with us, and we, it, it wasn't very long. We thought it was going to be a lot longer than it was. But I never forget the night that she passed away. She was in her home in a hospital bed in Lakewood, Washington. And we became aware that she was getting close to death. And, and I was with our girls at a Wednesday night church children's ministry. And she asked where we were. And Judy said, I think we better get, get home. So we came home. And we went in. And I will never forget her spirit and her posture. There was no fear. There was joy. She had a vision of Jesus before she died. And she was able to bring both of our daughters in, give them a hug and a kiss, and say goodbye. Peacefully went on. About five minutes after she passed, I was out in the hallway with our daughters. And Brittany was seven, ten. Brittany was ten. And she said to me, I used to be afraid of death. I'm not anymore. She saw Grandma go home. Knowing that she would see her again because she has eternal life. Death is not to be feared. Because we have eternal life. That's why Jesus came. There may be some here this morning who do not believe in life after death. I can't prove it to you. I believe it exists. There are also some who do not think we can know for sure that we have eternal life or life with Jesus after death. But we can know for sure. 1 John 5, 11 to 13, it says, This is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We can know. We can know we've been born again. We can know that we have eternal life. 1 John 5 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Are you like Nicodemus, searching for truth? Are you like Nicodemus, wanting to be born again? We read in later accounts that Nicodemus did believe. And you can too with a simple prayer. And I'd like us to bow our heads in prayer. If you've never prayed this prayer, I invite you to pray it this morning. Lord, you can pray it silently as I pray it aloud. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want to be born again. I admit I have made mistakes. I have sinned. I admit I cannot change myself. Thank you for dying for me so I can live. I believe you died and rose from the dead. Take charge of my life. I believe you can and will. Amen.